0: If you have your Bible with you and you would like to follow along as we read from the New Testament this Lord's day, we would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man, but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. For he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. May the Lord bless the reading of his word, and now the preaching of his word as well. Our text this Lord's Day, as we continue in a series through various portions of book of Proverbs, is in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. How is it that people can be so sincere in what they believe and yet be so wrong? For it is evident every day that people who hold contrary positions as to the truth cannot both be right, and yet they seem so sure that they are right. Self-deception is especially, dear ones, a terrible blindness when it comes to matters of eternal consequence. For it is one thing not to care at all about heaven or hell, and to lose one's soul. But it is another thing to care about heaven and hell, but to be so deceived that in spite of sincerity and zeal, one loses his soul to the eternal torment of hell. Could there be a worse surprise that awaits? those who are self-deceived then whistling all the way to hell with a self-confidence that everything is okay. No doubt there will be many on that final day of judgment that will learn the truth about themselves, but all too late. This is the message that Christ declares so clearly in Matthew chapter seven, verses twenty one through twenty three, concerning ministers and teachers who will appear before him on that last day. There the Lord says, Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now this sermon is not intended to cast saints into a vicious cycle of doubt, worry, and fear concerning the state of their soul. But it is intended to cause all who hear this sermon to examine themselves so as to know wherein lies their only hope of eternal salvation. In fact, I would pray that all who are justified by faith Alone would find much encouragement to their faith from this sermon this Lord's Day. However, I must challenge you as well. I must challenge myself that we not rest our salvation in our mere sincerity, in our mere sorrow for sin, in our mere zeal in our mere knowledge of the truth, in our mere acts of obedience, in our mere acts of mercy, or in our baptism, or in our church. On the one hand, we pray for the blessed grace of assurance of faith, but on the other hand, we pray that God exposes all self-deception where it blinds any To their true spiritual poverty before God. Just as Jesus exposes the self-deception of those elders and members in the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, wherein the Lord himself says to those who profess to be Christians, But thou sayest, I am rich, and increase with goods, and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. Let us therefore prayerfully consider from our text in Proverbs 14.12 the following two points. First, the deception of mere sincerity. And second, the consequence of self-deception. First of all, then, the self-deception of mere sincerity. This warning from God concerning the danger of self-deception is so important for us to hear that the Lord not only mentions it here in Proverbs 14.12, but brings the same proverb word for word to our attention again in Proverbs 16.25. Here is a red flashing light at a train track wherein God declares that we must give heed if we would live and not die. There is a way which seems right or literally straight, unto a man. Here Solomon speaks of a course of life, or a path of religion which seems so right unto a person. However, it is right not in an absolute sense, but right in an apparent sense. Literally, our text says, there is a right way before the face of a man. That is, in the man's own eyes, from his own personal perspective, it appears to be the right way to live. It seems to be the right religion or philosophy to believe. In fact, there is nothing in the Hebrew word used here for right when it says there is a way which seemeth right. There is nothing in that word right that would give us the impression that such a person knows he is walking contrary to the truth, but just doesn't care, and intentionally and willfully walks down that particular path, anyway. To the contrary, the words used in Proverbs, this proverb would lead us to conclude that it is indeed his intention to walk in the path that appears to him to be right. Here is a well-intentioned and sincere person that has not only been deceived, but has, in fact, deceived himself into believing a lie. He has willingly received a lie for the truth. It would seem that King Saul believed he was right in allowing the army of Israel to keep some of the animals captured from the Amalekites for the purpose of offering them to the Lord as a burnt offering. Even though God had previously told him to destroy everything without exception, Saul made an exception to God's non-exception. It was a way which seemed right to Saul under those circumstances. He said, This is an extraordinary circumstance. This could not have been what the Lord intended. How could it possibly be wrong to offer a sacrifice to the Lord? God declares it was not only wrong, but it was rebellion against him to do so. In first Samuel chapter fifteen, verses twenty two in 23, where he says that such rebellion is like witchcraft to him, to God. Dear ones, it is not what feels right to us or seems right to a majority of the people that is right. What is right to do in any circumstance must be measured by the infallible standard of God's word. We're reminded of the words of the prophet when other authorities were raised as to, who, to whom we should listen, or the people at that time should listen, and we find this alone to whom we should listen, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. The very last verse in the book of Judges describes so well what was responsible for various acts of disobedience during those backsliding times, and then God's judgment that was brought upon them in Judges 21:25, where it says, "Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Rather than following the alone, infallible standard of truth, God's written word, the people were a law unto themselves and were led by their own fallible standards of what was right and what was wrong. And as a result, we find this ever-repeating cycle throughout the book of Judges, wherein, first of all, they do what is right in their own eyes. Second, God sends a nation to chasten Israel. Thirdly, they repent of their sin. And fourthly, God sends a deliverer. But then the cycle starts all over again, the same cycle, and this goes on again and again and again and again throughout the book of Judges. Beloved, God says, all men are naturally inclined, due to the corruption of their soul, to doing what is right in their own eyes. Proverbs sixteen two. All the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes. Proverbs twelve fifteen. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. And that is why the Lord commands us not to lean upon our own mere understanding and seeking the wisdom and the counsel of of the Lord in seeking to know what is the right way, the right path. In Proverbs three verses five through seven: Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord, and depart from evil. The Jews of Paul's time were very zealous for God, says Paul in Romans 10:2, but not according to a true knowledge of God. In the Gospel of John, the Lord Jesus tells his disciples the night before his crucifixion that the Jews would excommunicate them from their synagogues and would even put them to death sincerely believing they performed an act of religious service to God. John 16.2 They would believe they're actually performing a religious service to God. Self-deceived in putting to death the apostles. And along comes one of those Jews in the person of the unconverted Paul who fulfills exactly what Christ had prophesied. Paul even says about himself that he sincerely believed that he was obligated before God to persecute Christians. In Acts chapter 26, verses 9 through 11. Or consider the deception that is prophesied to come upon the whole world through the son of perdition, the man of sin, that papal antichrist, in Second Thessalonians chapter two, verses eight through twelve. And there it says that those who are deceived and become self deceived, it gives us the reason why. They took pleasure, it says, in that text, in unrighteousness, and secondly, they did not love the truth, even the gospel of salvation. And they deceive themselves into believing a lie. But, dear ones, we have much encouragement in the Lord that those who are God's elect, we are told by Christ, cannot. It is impossible that they be deceived by lying signs and wonders of such false teachers in fully and finally falling away from the Lord Jesus Christ. It cannot happen to one of God's elect. What are the various fallible standards that so often distort the truth so that man, in fact, believes a lie and is led into self-deception? Mark these, dear ones, so that you do not fall into self-deception by leaning upon one of these fallible standards. They may not cost you your soul if you are truly justified but they will cost you your growth in Christ. The first deception, the first deceptive standard, the deception of antiquity. The deception of antiquity argues because a practice has been used or a principle has been believed for so long a time it must be right. The Church of Rome argues that it is the only true Church of Christ because of its antiquity dear ones, it is not how old a church is that proves whether it is the true bride of Jesus Christ, but whether it is faithful to the doctrines and the worship and the government which Jesus Christ gave to his church. Heresy, beloved, has existed and always existed along with the truth since the time of Christ and the time of the Apostles. If age alone is that which is to be considered in determining what is right and what is true, heresy has as much of a claim to antiquity as does the truth. However, antiquity, I would also say, antiquity and history do have proper uses in our studies of the truth, in distinguishing the orthodox from the unorthodox the faithful from the unfaithful, so that we may identify ourselves with those who walk in all of the good old paths of righteousness and truth and may shun and testify against all of those who departed from those good and faithful old paths. But antiquity and history in and of themselves are not infallible guides to the truth. Antiquity and history must be subjected to the infallible standard of God's written word. A second standard of deception that we must avoid is the deception of experts. The deception of experts leads us into self-deception with such words as these. Who do you think you are to question the experts as to what is right or wrong? The experts are always right, whether in biology or psychology, religion, politics, ethics, philosophy, medicine, and we can go on and on. Only they have the authority to tell us what is right or wrong. Only they have the degrees behind their names that can speak with authority. And when the experts are challenged... Their ones, to prove their principles from an infallible standard of truth, then they rant and they rave and they resort to malicious lies and misrepresentations and name-calling. However, there is only one infallible expert, and that is God speaking in the Holy Scriptures. All other so-called experts, whether familial ecclesiastical or civil, are subordinate to the wisdom of God revealed in Scripture. Of course, that is not to say that God can only instruct us directly through the Scripture, apart from any teacher, minister, or elder. For Paul states that Christ gave as gifts to the church apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Why? for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come in the unity of the faith, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Ephesians 4, verses 11-14. The deception of experts comes when teachers, ministers, bishops, and popes are not subordinate to the scriptures and we blindly receive whatever we're told. We implicitly believe whatever we're taught without being like the Bereans and comparing all that is said to the infallible standard of scripture. The third deception is the deception of the majority of The deception of the majority will lead many into self-deception by making it sound so reasonable to be led by the will of the people. How many times have we heard, Majority rules, but dear ones, does the will of the people determine what is right or wrong? A majority of the people supported Hitler's Third Reich. A majority of the people once supported a racial slavery in this country. A majority of people would seem to support a woman's right, so-called right, to have her unborn child murdered. A majority of people believe that all false religion ought to be preserved and protected by the civil magistrate in this land. It will not be long unless God intervenes, dear ones, before a majority of the people will also believe that sodomites may be lawfully united in marriage. Although voting does have its place in the political process and at times in the church as well. A vote for that which is immoral and contrary to God's law never has a lawful place, whether within a nation or within the church. To the contrary, it is our sovereign God and his word that rules, not majority that rules. It is not the will of the people that determines right from wrong. It is the law of God that determines right from wrong. The last deception that I would share with you is the deception of the conscience. The deception of the conscience will bring self-deception by making us feel that something is right when it is really wrong. Making us feel that something is wrong when it is really right. However, the conscience is no more a dependable guide to the truth than is antiquity, experts, or the majority. For it, too, is fallible. Our conscience as well must be submitted to the supreme authority of God's infallible written word if it is to properly lead us into truth, just as antiquity and experts and majority, the majority must be. We testify, dear ones, with our confession of faith against the deception of antiquity, experts, the majority, and the conscience that God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to the word or beside it in matters of faith or worship. Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 20, Section 2. But then the question is raised, what about the various professing Christian churches that claim to appeal to the scriptures alone as their infallible rule of faith and practice and yet come to contradictory conclusions as to the truth? Does this fact disprove our contention that scripture is the alone infallible rule of faith and practice? Absolutely not. But the problem is not with the infallible standard of Scripture, but the problem is with us, who are sinful, fallible men. Let us be warned that we who profess faith in Jesus Christ may yet be led into into self-deception, even when we sincerely make our appeal to the Scriptures for what we believe in various points. Again, it may not be a self-deception that leads... To eternal death but nevertheless a real self-deception that leads to a blindness to the truth. How do professing Christians and professing Christian churches avoid such self-deception? Let me give to you four ways in which professing Christians and professing Christian churches avoid being led into self-deception. First, first, We may be deceived through our ignorance in understanding the revelation of God. That may be the problem why we become self-deceived. We simply do not understand the revelation of God and what He has revealed to us. We have perhaps taken something out of context. We have not considered other places in Scripture. We're ignorant. Now, rather than this discouraging us that we can be deceived by our ignorance, we should rather be encouraged to diligently study the Scripture using all the tools available to us in our modern libraries. Those tools that we have access to, those tools that we can use so that we can become, by God's grace, better informed, using even teachers, ministers, that Christ has gifted and given to the church, whether in the past or in the present, in leading us and helping us, being an aid to our understanding of Scripture not depending upon them as an, infallible, as an infallible guide, but nevertheless one that God does use in our lives. But I would also say, dear ones, that mere study is not enough to rightly understand the word of God, for this is not just an intellectual exercise. Without the Spirit of God leading and guiding us into truth, we will fall upon our own understanding and incline ourselves to self-perception. The second way to avoid self deception on the part of professing Christians and Christian churches. We may be self deceived through our preconceived biases and cherished preferences. To the degree that we are led in our study of Scripture by what we want to find in it, to that same degree we will likely find what we wanted to find. And fall into self deception. If we would avoid self deception, let us not force the Scripture into our own wants and desires. Rather, let the Spirit of God speak forth His own good pleasure through His Word. Third way to avoid self deception we may be self deceived through our pride in refusing to listen to teachers and ministers more wise and knowledgeable than ourselves, whom Christ gave to the church as an aid to our edification. You see, there is the tendency in many of us to want to find something in the Scripture which no one has ever found and to exalt our own intellectual gifts and abilities in the presence of others. But let us always be cautious of that which is novel and carefully subject that which is new to the most strict standards of evaluation, never refusing the criticism of teachers past and present. For God declares that there is safety in a multitude of qualified counselors. Proverbs 11, verse 14. There is all, this is always, dear ones, a very helpful check and balance to our own vanity and pride. And fourthly, we may be self-deceived through our willful disobedience of what we already know to be right and true. When we do not live up to the light of knowledge already granted to us by the Lord in his word, we are unlikely to be given more light in the truth. For why should the Lord give us more light if we're not already living up to the light he has given to us? When we in fact suppress, ignore, neglect, or even rebel against the light that He has given to us already, it is far more likely the case that we will be turned over to self deception as a discipline from the Lord if we do not live a life of integrity, seeking and endeavoring by God's grace to live as consistently in the truth in all circumstances and situations, whether in a public situation with our family, or when we're all by ourselves. If we would avoid the darkness of self-deception, let us learn to live, whether we're in public or in secret, let us learn to live in the light of God's all-seeing eye. Let us humbly and quickly repent for our sin and error and seek the fatherly forgiveness of God. For the darkness of sin, and especially that which is willful sin in our lives, will indeed blind us to the truth. But the light of loving obedience in our lives will be rewarded by the Lord in opening our eyes to the truth. Carefully note the words of the Lord in John chapter 7, verse 17. where Jesus gives us a basis upon which to understand whether doctrine is from God or from man when he says, if any man will do his will, that is God's will, he shall know of the doctrine whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself as a mere man. Notice he doesn't say if anyone is willing to know his will, he'll know whether it's from God or man. Whether or not he is willing to do God's will. Are you willing to obey the Lord in all the areas that God has already shown to you, the light that he has already given to you? Not perfectly, not sinlessly, not flawlessly, but are you willing? And is it your desire to be obedient to the Lord in all the areas that God has already given you light concerning? And when you fail, Are you quick to repent, humble yourself, and desire to be restored into fellowship and communion with the Lord that you might continue to proceed in that path of knowledge and understanding? Perhaps a question that weighs upon us with even greater gravity than the one we've just discussed is this How can I know that I have not simply deceived myself as to being a Christian? Is there a more important question than this one? Is there a question with greater consequences at stake than this one? For clearly there are those who will have deceived themselves on that last day. As we noted earlier in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, let me give you, dear ones, some criteria by which to evaluate whether you have deceived yourself as to the state of your soul. First, the triune God speaks with absolute and infallible authority, and he has spoken in Holy Scripture, which is the alone infallible rule of faith and life. The first piece of criterion by which to evaluate your self deception or lack thereof in the matter of the eternal state of your soul. I ask you, is this your firm conviction? If even your own conscience speaks contrary to Scripture, do you believe that your conscience must bow and submit itself to God speaking in Holy Scripture? Is there any other authority that you affirm that is higher than the authority of God speaking in Holy Scripture? Second, of criterion is this all men by nature deserve the eternal condemnation of God for the guilt of Adam's sin the loss of original righteousness the corruption of one's own soul and for one's own personal sins there is nothing that man who is dead in his trespasses and sins can do to save himself I ask you do you understand and acknowledge your hopeless and helpless condition if salvation depends upon you. A third point of criterion by which to evaluate the matter of self-deception. God, out of His infinite mercy and grace, sent His divine Son to fulfill all the righteous demands of His broken law and to atone for the sins of all the ungodly embrace by faith alone Jesus Christ as their only hope of eternal salvation. It is not your faith. It is not your repentance. It is not your love. It is not your new obedience that saves you. It is the object of your faith that saves you. Jesus Christ and His righteousness. It is not the strength of your faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith that saves you. Namely, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not the strength of your faith that grants you judicial forgiveness for all of your sins, past, present, and future. But it is the object of your faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I ask you, is there anything in you Or anything done by you, which you believe is meritorious before God, or will incline God to save you? Or do you look entirely outside of yourself and look with the eye of faith to Jesus Christ and His righteousness alone as meritorious before an infinitely holy God? Do you not only believe that Christ is able and willing to save sinners in general who come to him, but do you believe that he is able and willing to save you, you in particular, if you come to him and drink of the waters of eternal life that he freely offers you? The fourth piece of criterion by which you evaluate self-deception God is not finished with those who are justified, but promises to gradually subdue the evil desires, profane words, and abominable actions that yet reveal themselves in their life, and to gradually manifest more and more pure desires, edifying words and lawful actions by applying all the benefits, all of the blessings, all of the promises, which were purchased for you by Jesus Christ. This is not perfectionism in life, but sanctification in life. I ask you, do you desire not only to escape the eternal condemnation in hell, but do you desire to be conformed to the glorious image of Jesus Christ? Do you desire to grow in your hatred for sin and your love for righteousness? Do you desire to increase in your love for God and for the brethren? Do you hunger and thirst for the truth of God to be illuminated to your own understanding that you might not only know it, but do it? Dear ones, I would submit that one who can embrace by faith these truths with his mind and will and his desire cannot deceive himself as to the true state of his soul despite the deception of the conscience that would take his eyes off of these biblical truths just mentioned, he can proclaim in faith, even when he does not feel it with the strength and sense of faith, he can proclaim, Christ is my righteousness and my salvation. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my strength and my fortress. In Him will I trust. Surely he shall defend me from the snare of a deceptive and tyrannical conscience. He shall cover me with his feathers, and under his wings shall I trust. His truth shall be my shield and buckler against all the assaults of an erring conscience. I simply want to say very briefly about the second main point that second main point being the consequence of self-deception I want to make this point in closing the verse reads there is a way which seemeth right unto a man but the end thereof are the ways of death the death here mentioned has in view far more than an untimely physical death it looks to eternal death and hell This is, dear ones, the end of the road to all those who deceive themselves as to the eternal state of their soul and imagine that they are worthy to enter heaven and to escape hell in some way based upon their merit. With such an end awaiting those who are self-deceived about their eternal salvation, how can you, dear ones, I ask you, how can you lightly dismiss this all-important question, this all-important message from God today? Let not His gracious warning fall upon a sleepy mind or neglectful will or rebellious desires today. Plead to Christ, who alone is the way, the truth, and the life and walk by God's grace in that narrow path that leads to eternal life. Even if the whole world seems to be walking on that broad path that leads to eternal destruction, stay by God's grace upon that narrow path. Take up the cross of Christ and follow Him. Let us stand in prayer. Our gracious Father in Heaven, we do thank Thee this day that Thou hast given to us both warning and encouragement from Thy Word how to avoid self-deception, to identify self-deception and then how to avoid it. And how, Father, to be assured even when our conscience, our erring conscience, our condemning conscience, Our deceptive conscience would lead us contrary to the truth. We pray, our Father, that Thou would would encourage Thy people this day. Thou would lift up Thy people as they do search their hearts, as they do, in fact, use these means to evaluate their own lives. That, Father, would not be... uh, a means of bringing, Lord, uh, those who are true saints down and casting them into despair, but rather, oh Lord, it may be a means to lift them up, to rejoice in the infallible truth and the promises of the Lord Jesus Christ, God who cannot lie. We thank Thee, our Father, for Thy word this day, for the ministry of Thy Spirit, Amongst us. And we would pray for them to fill the weight and the gravity of this verse. There is a way which seems right unto a man, for the end thereof are the ways of death. We ask our Lord that thou would continue thy ministry amongst us as we cheerfully,
1: joyfully sing thy praises.
0: In Jesus' name, amen.